0: Well, today is October 31st. It's a significant day on the calendar, not because it's Halloween and we're going to eat candy, uh, but because it is Reformation Sunday. It was on October 31, 1517, when Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk in the Roman Catholic Church, nailed the 95 Theses or arguments to the church door in Wittenberg. And many people point to this event as being the beginning uh, of the Protestant Reformation. His goal. In doing that was not to start something new. Uh, his goal was to try to encourage change within. But there were some students who got a hold of these 95 theses written in Latin for the, to be used within, within the church, and they translated it from Latin to German, the common language of the people. And the Gutenberg printing press had been recently invented, and so they were able to distribute His arguments, meant to just be used within the church, they distributed them to all the people in Germany, not all, but many. And the people began reading Luther's arguments, and they resonated with it. And they said, yes, there is a need for change. There is a need for reform. There is a need to be restored, for the church to be restored back to the New Testament practices and beliefs and teachings. And uh, the church was unwilling to restore reform, and they referred to Luther and his followers as protesters uh, in a pejorative way, or Protestants, which is where the word comes from. Now, today, you and I, we are not Lutherans. Uh, we don't agree with everything Luther did. We don't agree with everything Luther taught. We don't agree with everything Luther wrote. Um, but we can look back to this movement and see how God used it in an incredible way. And we can see how we are who we are today because of of this event. Uh, we, We can't tell our story of who we are as Baptists apart from telling this story. We can't tell our story of who we are as Protestants. We can't tell our story of who we are as Evangelicals apart from telling the story of the Protestant Reformation. So I think it's right for us to take a time today and to return and celebrate these great truths that were reclaimed, recovered, rediscovered in the 16th century. And, and our goal is not just merely to look back. Our goal is to to reclaim so that we move forward faithfully. And so we're taking a, a short break from our series in Mark. We are going to be looking at Romans 3, verses 21 through 25. This is considered one of the most central passages in the Bible. I believe this passage will highlight the central issue of the Reformation. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Romans 3, Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 21 through 25, and this is the very inspired Word of God, our ultimate authority. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Let's pray. Father, we look back at this important chapter in history, your history, church history, and we want to celebrate today these great truths that were reclaimed uh, but we also recognize we only celebrate these things insofar as they point us to you and insofar as they point us to your word and insofar as they point us to your gospel. And so I pray above all today, we would return to your gospel and we would faithfully move forward from here, remaining faithful to your good news. In Jesus Christ, we pray it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. So the Protestant Reformation impacted a number of different arenas, including education, including government, including the arts. We just sang one of Luther's songs earlier, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, But the most significant influence that we're going to focus on is the theological influence. And I think the most succinct way to summarize it is by thinking about and referencing what's called the five solas that you heard referred to earlier in Latin, sola gratia, Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, Sola Fide, Soli Deo Gloria, and translated from the Latin in English, this is Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, for God's glory alone. And our, our service this morning is following that pattern, and our sermon this morning is going to follow that pattern, so let's start with Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. Now Romans 3, 21 through 25 is our passage, but that passage is not primarily about Scripture. It's primarily about the gospel. But I do want you to notice that the scripture is, is appealed to in our text. Look at verse 21. He says, The law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's appealing to the Old Testament to make his case. He's arguing for the gospel and justification by faith alone. But he appeals to the Old Testament. And you know, I think about Luther appealing to scripture alone in the face of great strong tradition. Here's Paul appealing to scripture In the face of tradition, he's appealing to the Old Testament. He's going to appeal to Abraham in Romans 4 to make his argument that we are justified by faith alone. He says, you want the proof? Let me point you to Abraham, point you to the Scriptures, point you to the Old Testament. I also want to point out this morning, we are using the Bible as our ultimate authority. We only refer to this era in church history, the 16th century. We only uh, uh, appeal to Luther insofar as they point us back to the Scriptures. And where they don't point us back to the Scriptures, we're not overly interested. We don't believe what we believe because Luther said it. We don't believe what we believe because the reformers said it. We believe what we believe because the Bible says it. And this is what sola scriptura is about. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Now, this doesn't mean we're opposed to creeds or confessions of faith or doctrinal statements. The Reformers very much used these as summaries of Scripture. This doesn't mean we're opposed to teachers and preachers who are equipped to preach and teach God's Word. It obviously doesn't mean we're opposed to the church, which has an incredible responsibility of of maintaining the the scriptures and the tradition of the scriptures and and handing it down. And so we're not anti-creeds, confessions of faith, doctrinal statements. We're not anti-preachers and teachers. We're not anti-church. When we talk about scripture alone, we're referring to scripture alone as our ultimate authority for what we believe and for what we do. Uh, Luther was willing to die for this truth. He was on trial at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And he was told to recant. Like, say, say you don't believe these things you've been saying. And this was a, he experienced a lot of consternation. And he came out and made this statement famously. He says, "...unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone... As it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. And then many people believe he went on and said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And I love how Luther is standing before the Emperor who has the authority to take his life with the sword, and and likely will, being told to recant. And Luther says, that's not safe. It's not safe to go against God's word. It's safer to experience the sword of the state uh, than it is to go against the very inspired word of God. And this makes all the sense in the world. If God has truly spoken to us in human form, and if it has been inscripturated in the Old and New Testament, as we believe it has, How could we not affirm sola scriptura? How could we not affirm that this is our ultimate authority? If God has spoken by the prophets, by the apostles, written down in holy inspired scripture, if we really believe this, how can we not affirm and believe in scripture alone? And I I just like to point out all the things that people tend to appeal to for why they believe what they believe and why they do what they do. Many people will say, well, this is just what seems right to me. Or this is just what feels right to me. Or this is what makes me happy. I think I should do what makes me happy. Therefore, that's what I will do. And that's what I will believe. Many people will appeal to their upbringing. This is what I've always been taught to believe. This is what my parents have taught me. This is the way I make sense of the world. Many people will try to sound spiritual. And they'll say, I believe this because I believe God wants me to do this. I believe God wants me to think like this. And they'll blame God for it. And we're saying, no, Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Not what I feel, not what I think, not what experience has taught me, not what I sense. What does Scripture Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Now, I'm guessing many of you agree with me that Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And the next practical question is this, if we really believe that, are we spending a sufficient amount of time in God's Word. If we really believe it's our ultimate authority, wouldn't it make sense we would place ourselves under it, under people who can teach it and preach it in worship and in other settings? Wouldn't it make sense that we would spend personal time coming under God's Word? So, If we are people who really believe Scripture alone for ultimate authority, wouldn't it make sense, wouldn't it translate that we would also be the people who spend a significant amount of time trying to discern and figure out what does God say? in his word. We believe scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Now this raises the question, if this book is so important, what is the message of the book? And this brings us to talk about grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, which these three can't really be separated. We're going to try to separate them today, but they can't ultimately be separated. You can't understand one without the other. Because these three, grace a uh, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, get to the the heart of the issue. They get to the heart of the issue, which is justification by faith alone. Or how can a person be right with God? You want a simple, what is the main central issue of the Protestant Reformation? Here it is. How does a person become right with God? That's the central issue. And the first answer is grace alone. Sola gratia. Look at Romans 3.24 with me. For we are justified by His grace, as a gift. The word justified means to be declared right. God declares us to be right with Him, which, which, which means that we are not right with Him. In order to be justified, there's something that pre- precedes that, which is we're not right with God, and that's what the first two chapters of Romans are all about. Paul's laying out this case, we're not right with God. And he begins by talking about the world, the pagans, them out there, they're not right with God. And we're all saying, amen. And then Paul turns the finger toward us and he says, and now it's your turn. And he says, you guys who are moral and religious and conservative and think of yourselves as being a little closer to God, you, he says, it's you too. There's no one righteous, Romans 3.10. And he goes on in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is the problem. It's a real problem. We are not right with God because of our sin and it is a universal problem it is every single person but here's the deal it's a really bad news but there's also some really good news but God has solved the problem he has given us everything we need to solve the problem he's given it to us as a gift it comes to us by his grace there is nothing we contribute to the equation in order to be right with him verse 21 he says it is apart from the law It is not through our obedience to the law. It is not by anything we do. It is a gift. It is by grace. Which, by the way, I want to just point out, that goes against everything within us. Everything within us wants to say, surely I can contribute something. Surely I need to kind of clean myself up to get myself ready to receive God's grace. Surely there's something I'm supposed to do. No, you can't. And this is the incredible good news. I hope you hear it. It is by grace alone that you become right with God. It is by grace alone. We have these Christmas wrapped shoe boxes out here. If you're not familiar, if you're saying, man, these guys celebrate Christmas early around here. uh, These are for Operation Christmas Child, and they're meant for you to take. So we'd ask you, take a box. uh, Take the ones on the right side, not the left side. The left side already have stuff in them. Uh, Take as many as you want, and fill them with stuff that's appropriate for the, the right age and the right gender and then bring it back. Our OCC collection week is November 15th through 22. And those boxes are going to get distributed all around the world to children who don't have access to much at all. And I've been on those OCC deliveries. I went to Peru several years ago, and I got to hand those boxes out, and I watched those kids open the boxes. It's an incredible thing to experience and witness. First of all, they just hang on to that box. They just cherish it. And they're sitting there excited, and they wait. They're very patient. They wait until they are told they can open the box. And they open it, and to watch it is incredible. They go through every little item in there. And, I mean, it's things like pencils and pens and socks and washcloths. And they just cherish every little item. Like, wow. And they hold it up, and they show their friends, look at this pencil I got. Right? And then after, they put it all back in the box, and when they leave the room, there's nothing left behind. You know, I always think about if this happened here, you know, my kids, there'd be stuff everywhere, you know. Pencils, I don't need pencils, leave it behind, who cares, right. They, they just cherish every little thing. It's a gift. They don't receive gifts like this. They get the gift and then they get to hear the gospel. And they get to hear about God gave his one and only son. And it's by grace alone. And this is so hard for us to receive gifts. It's hard to receive gifts. We, we want to say, surely there's something that I I, I could do to kind of calls me to be in a, a better place where I kind of deserve the gift at some level. And that's not what grace alone is about. Grace alone is about God shows His grace. He gives you the gift apart from anything you do. And there, there, there's, two, there's two things, there's two reasons why this is hard for us. One, we just think highly of ourselves, more highly than we should. We just say, surely there's something I can do to contribute. And the Bible says, no, you can't receive God's grace If you have too high a view of yourself. If you think you can contribute something to the equation, you don't get to experience God's grace. You have to come realizing, I come empty-handed. I come with nothing. I come deserving it. Zero. No one is righteous. All have sinned. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You cannot experience God's grace if you think there's something about you that deserves it. The second problem is we, we think we have too low a view of God. We fail to recognize His holiness, His otherness. To, to think that there's something I could contribute to this equation is laughable. He's too holy. Who's too set apart? There's nothing I can do to, 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 to bridge the chasm that exists between me and God. You know, Luther's initial opposition to the Roman Catholic Church came as a result of him experiencing the abuses of the selling of indulgences. So in the day, they were selling indulgences. It was their way of raising money to pay for St. Peter's Basilica, which was very expensive and very costly. They say, how are we going to get people to give money? Oh, we got an idea. Let's sell indulgences. In other words, let's go around and tell people, hey, do you want your grandma to spend less time in purgatory and go to heaven a little sooner? Give a little money to the church. We'll pay for the basilica, and grandma gets to go to heaven a little sooner. And there was a little slogan that they used. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Just give a little money, a little coin in the coffer. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, there's tons of things that are wrong with this. And I don't have time to highlight all of them. But let me just highlight one. The chasm between us and our Creator and our sin, because of our sin and because of His holiness, is too great. It's massive. It's too great for us to be able to do anything to contribute to us being made right with Him. Now, the good news is, God solves the problem. God, by His grace, bridges the chasm. So there's good news. You can be right with God, though the chasm is great. But you can't come to understand it until you come to realize you're in need of His grace. And because of you and your sin, you are far from being made right with Him. I hope today, I hope this morning... If you've never come to recognize the incredible good news of what it means that we can be saved by grace alone, I hope today you'll come to understand it. This brings us now to talk about solus Christus, or Christ alone. You can't really understand what grace alone means until you understand what Christ alone means. They're just too connected. Because the grace that God gives us is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gift that God provides for us. Jesus Christ is the solution for the great chasm. And when Luther came to realize this, this is what he describes as his conversion experience. He became converted when he came to realize Jesus Christ is the provision that God gives us. Luther talks about prior to conversion, he read verses like Romans 1.17, which says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And Luther says, I hated that phrase. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, because the way Luther understood it, the justice of God is so great, there's no way I can merit it. There's no way I can experience it. I can achieve it. Luther knew. Hearing the the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, Luther said, I hate that. Because when I hear righteousness of God, all he thinks is a righteous standard that he can't meet. And so he said, this is awful news. I hate this. But then he describes his conversion of when he read Romans 1:17 and he came to realize, "Oh, the righteousness of God is not only God's righteous perfect standard that he demands of me, it's also the righteousness he provides for me and meets the, his own standard that he demands of me." And he says the lights came on and he became saved. Listen to how Luther says it. "Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn" And to have gone through open doors into paradise, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God or righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. He came to understand why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Not just the righteousness of God as a standard you must meet in order to be right with God, but the righteousness of God as the provision, the righteousness God has given to us as a gift by His grace so that we can meet that incredibly high standard. Look, Look at Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God comes to us outside of the law because the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. He says the law and the prophets bear witness to it, point to it, but they're not it. It is Christ. Christ is the righteousness God provides for us. He provides what He demands of us. Wow. Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness because it comes to us from outside of us. It is not, it's not internal. Uh, it, it comes from without. It is external. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, We are justified or made right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Jesus Christ is the righteousness that God provides. And notice how He refers to His death. It's the death of Jesus. He emphasizes the death, He refers to it as the blood of Jesus. It's just a a metaphorical way of describing the death. It is the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that God puts forward in order for us to be right with God. And Paul refers to it as a propitiation. It's a fancy word. What does that mean? I'll, I'll tell you what a propitiation involves. It involves wrath. The wrath of God, which once was set against me, Jesus becomes a propitiation so that the wrath gets set against Jesus instead of me. See, Paul's been making this argument for Romans chapter 1, chapter 2. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed against us, and it's set against us. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. It can be set against Jesus instead of you, so you can go free, so you can be made right with God. Jesus has been treated as the sinner. Because your sin has been placed on Christ at the cross and the wrath of God can be propitiated. It can be satisfied against the Son instead of you. That's the incredible good news of the gospel. Jesus dies in my place on the cross so that I don't have to, so that I can be right with God. Here in a little bit, we're going to sing a great song, In Christ Alone. And listen to the second verse. The second verse says, In Christ alone who took on flesh... Fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The PCUSA Church, Presbyterian Church USA in 2013, chose to exclude this hymn from their hymnal. And the reason is because of this phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied. And before they chose to remove it, they went to the authors of the song, Keith Getty, Stuart Townend, and they said, can we change the phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied, and change it to the love of God was magnified? So that it would read, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. It's a lot more positive, right? A little more uplifting. We don't have to talk about a wrathful God. And we still get to talk about the love of God being magnified, Alright? And the author said, no, you, you can't make the change. And it's not because they disagreed with that lyric, per se. I think they would agree with the lyric. The love of God was magnified at the cross. But here's the problem with it. If you don't understand that the wrath of God was satisfied at the cross, then you don't understand that the love of God was magnified at the cross. Because if you remove the wrath of God being satisfied at the cross, you've just removed the gospel. you just gutted the gospel of the heart. You've just gutted the gospel of its power. This is what is so powerful. This is what is so incredible. This is what is so loving about the good news of what Jesus Christ did. The wrath of God was set against me. But Jesus went to the cross and took the wrath for me, satisfying the wrath of God in my place by his blood so that I can go free, so that I can be made right with God, so that I can be adopted as his son. This is the good news of Christianity. This is why Jesus came. You get rid of the wrath of God was satisfied, you just get rid of why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus didn't come as a religious leader to condemn sin. Jesus didn't come as a religious leader to tell people what to do. Jesus didn't come as a religious leader to give a bunch of lists of do this and don't do that. He he certainly did some teaching. But the central reason for which Jesus came was to lay down his life as a substitute for me and for you. The central reason for which Jesus came was to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what's the incredible message about Christianity. You are not right with God, but you can be right with God because of God's grace, because of what God has done for you. In Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, resurrection, you can be right with God. And this brings us now to talk about sola fide, or faith alone. If you've been tracking with me so far, here's what you've heard me say. The central issue of the Protestant Reformation is this question, how can I be right with God? That's not a question modern people are asking because modern people don't see themselves as being not right with God. So we have a real problem on our hands when we talk to modern people. Hey, I have a way that you can be right with God. They say, what are you talking about? I am right with God, right? First of all, we have to convince people you're not right with God. You have to first come to realize I'm not right with God. There's a chasm that separates me from Him because of my sin. That's the bad news. Here's the incredible good news. God has done it. Everything for you that you need in order to have that chasm bridged. He did it all for you. He'll give it all to you by His grace. He'll give it to you as a gift. And it comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope some of you are saying, that sounds wonderful, but what do I do to get it? How can I experience it? How can I leave here saying, I know I'm right with God? And the answer is, it is by faith alone that you become right with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 1.17 says, In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In other words, it's all by faith. Faith at the beginning, faith at the middle, faith at the end. We receive everything we receive from God by faith. Look at Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's another word, believe. Is synonymous with faith. You have to hear this incredible good news and believe it. Believe on it, trust in it. Trust is another word, is synonymous with faith, belief, trust. Hear the good news, recognize it's true, and believe and trust on Jesus Christ for your right standing with God. If you'll do this, he says, verse 25, it'll be received by faith, and you'll be justified, made right with God. Look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified or made right with God by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, there's nothing you do. It's apart from works of the law. It is by faith alone. And I love verse 31. Look at verse 31. This is hopeful. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul says, I'm not anti-law. I'm not saying throw the law out. I'm not saying obedience is no longer important. I'm just saying you've got to get the order right. Justification by faith alone first, and then the obedience. You've got to get the order right. And not only do you have to get the order right, but you've got to get justification right. This is crucial. What is justification? The Roman Catholic Church taught in Luther's day and still teaches today that justification, this is important, is a process. And you never become perfectly justified in this life. So you're always in a process toward becoming more and more justified, more and more right with God. You never really achieve it in this life. So how do you get there? Well, it's, it's by faith, and it's by Christ, and it's by grace, but it's also by penance, and it's also by indulgences, mass and the different things that you do. And you never achieve it. that's, That's justification according to the Roman Catholic Church. Luther, the Reformers, us, the Bible, says no. When you read the Scriptures, when you read how Paul talks about justification, justification is not a process. Justification is a legal declaration that God makes of you. Sanctification is the process. Sanctification is where you become more and more holy, more and more like Christ, Put to death sin more and more in your life. So there's certainly a process, but that's not justification. You've got to get it right. Justification is the question, how can I be right with God? And justification says God can and will declare you to be right with Him so you can be right with Him now in this life. In fact, we would say all people fall into one of two categories. You are either justified or you are not. Think about that. Right now you fall into one of two categories. It separates all of humanity. You are either right before your Creator, on good terms with him, or you are not. That's justification is the, 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 the answer, the solution, the good news, that you can be right with God. How? It is by grace alone. It is a gift alone. It is by faith alone, and that faith is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's incredible good news. I hope this morning you you are hearing how good it is. You can be right with your Creator by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this brings us to the fifth solo, sola deo gloria. What in the world does this have to do with everything else we've been talking about? And the short answer is everything. It has everything to do with what we've been talking about. Romans is kind of divided into two parts. Romans 1 through 11, the gospel. Romans 12 through 16, how we live in light of what God's done for us. And both of these sections end on a doxological note. They, they, they point toward God's glory. What God's done for us in Christ points to God's glory. Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then the very end of Romans, chapters 12-16 through are summarized, or they end, they conclude on this note, the very last verse of Romans 12, 16-27. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In other words, everything is for His glory. He saves us for His glory. The gospel is for His glory. It's all for Him and His glory. I, I lead a Bible study on Wednesday nights. We meet at 6.30. We meet in the Fellowship Hall. We'd love to have you join us if you're interested. We talk about and discuss the sermon from the previous Sunday. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Mark twelve thirty, the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I asked the question, why do you all think this is the greatest commandment? I mean, of all the commandments, 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament, why does Jesus say the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And one person said very profoundly, very simply, it, it has to be that because that's the purpose for which all things exist. Right? Every, God does everything He does for His glory. That's why God created. Why did God create all of this? He created for His glory, for His purposes. Why did God, when it all fell, choose to enter in and redeem it? He chose to do it for His glory. Why did God choose to enter in and and speak to us through Holy Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, so that we can know Him and know ourselves? Why do that? Why speak through Scripture? For His glory. God does everything for His glory. You were created for Him. The very first catechism question of the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? What is your purpose? What is your chief purpose in life? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You were created for God's glory. You were created to enjoy Him. That that, that longing you have to be satisfied, that longing you have to experience joy, that longing you have to be happy is a God-given longing. It's a God-given craving. You're craving to live a meaningful life. You're craving to live a purposeful life. You're craving to be satisfied. Why? Because God hardwired you for a craving for that. And he created you to be satisfied in him. You were created for the purpose that you might bring him glory and enjoy it and enjoy life by bringing him glory. Now, the problem is we don't live as if we don't live like this. We live as if the chief end of man is me. I often live as if the chief end of life is for me. And you often live as the chief end of, of, of your purpose is for you. And we often do what we think will make us happy. I'm going to do this because I think it will make me happy. Therefore, that's why I'm doing this. And this, by the way, is the reason why people are miserable. People are miserable because they're living as if they are the chief end of man. And if you are miserable right now in life, it is likely because you are going after yourself and your own happiness and and what you think will make you happy, and you're going after it thinking, if you can have this, you'll be satisfied. You're living as if you are the chief end. And I'm here to tell you, in a loving way, you're not. You're not. You were created by a Creator, and you were created by Him. And this, by the way, is incredible good news. This is incredible good news. The five solas are such good news. You can find the purpose for which you were created. You can live according to the meaning for which you were created, and you can be satisfied in that and find joy in that. It's not for you, it's for Him. But there's joy in it. And and He has spoken, so you can actually know Him, and you can know what He expects of you. And He's spoken, therefore you can know yourself. You don't have to look to pop psychology to try to figure yourself out. You can look to God's Word and know yourself. And you can look at His Word, which tells you bad news, you're a sinner, but it tells you the truth. You're a sinner, you come up really short. But it also tells you the good news. God has solved your sin problem and given you everything you need in Christ. And by His grace as a gift, you can be right with God because of what He's done for you through Jesus Christ. Wow. And it tells you even better news. Here's how you can receive that. You receive it by faith alone. You hear it and you believe it and you trust on Christ. And you will be made right with your Creator. And you can enjoy your Creator and you can live for Him the very purpose for which you were created in the first place and enjoy life and be satisfied in Him. So here's my final question for you this morning. What in the world are you waiting on? Hear this incredible good news and go to Christ and believe on Him and be right with your Creator and then live for the purpose for which He created you which was to live for Him, obey Him, and bring Him glory. Let's pray.